We're kicking off That Girl Can Talk with a man that can do exactly the same. The name of my podcast, That Girl Can Talk, and we're going to talk about everything interesting under the sun. So I thought what we would do is just kind of kick this off talking about the legislative session. You know, I have people, I have friends that say, I don't do politics. Well, you know, my daughter once said, politics does you. And Colorado lawmakers have began their new session up in Denver. So I thought it would be a good time for us to get together, Jim Bullock, Assistant District Attorney of the 16th, and just talk about some things that that might be of concern to you. We've done this before, and every year I'm sure you have a hot list, right? Well, it's kind of funny. This year the list is not as long as it normally is, but we've got bigger topics. And so, um, you know, the reemergence of the same issues, but different twists, you know. One of the things that really kind of caught my eye is the Colorado District Attorney's Council is very active in the legislative process. We have uh, representatives for our organizations in trying to influence the criminal justice legislation. But sometimes, uh, stealing an expression from my father from many years ago, sometimes it feels like we're pushing water uphill with a broom. Because the harder we work, it seems like we're, we're losing traction. And that's certainly true with this. One step forward. Two steps back. Exactly. And so, oh, in this case, maybe three. Well, yeah. and uh, I get that there are legislators who believe that what they're trying to do benefits our community. But sometimes they miss the target. They help the wrong uh, individual. In this case, it seems like most of our legislation now is coming out um, to favor the accused, uh, the defendant, the juvenile who's committed a crime, as opposed to victims' rights in our community in general. When you go to the Colorado Legislature's website and you can search bills and you have different categories, I went to the judicial and courts, and you're right, it seemed like there were not as, as many. But there also seemed to be a few things on there that could actually be favorable, um, especially I think there was one bill brought by Senator Cook, a couple of bills, you know, and he's former law enforcement. Right. I guess there's, it has to be, obviously, like you said, there's going to be some, some good things come out of this, right? Well, the thing about Senator Cook's bills is he's in the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think some of the suggestions he had um, were are good ideas, but it's just not going to gain any traction, not because they're bad ideas, mm-hmm. but because he's in the minority. Our, our current legislative makeup is so polarized that the assumption is, is the fact that if you're a Republican, it's a bad idea. If you're a liberal, irregardless of what the content is, if it gets traction in the your caucus, then it's probably going to become law. And that's exactly why we want that makeup to be closer to being balanced, right? That's exactly right. If you can have, um, you know, it used to be that partisan ideas would be presented. Uh, and it's kind of weird in that the, the district attorney's council, um, when I was just coming off uh, as the elected DA, we have 22 districts, and we had 11 Republicans, 11 Democrats. And in that organization, any one DA could veto the entire position of the the, the district attorney's council board. Um, we were all focused on criminal justice, and generally we were unanimous in the bills that we supported based upon the fact that it was good for, for law enforcement. Um, you know, the politics didn't play a role. but. We've now had to come to a situation where we have to respond to ideas. And the, 
there are two items of legislation that deal with juveniles that really I find difficult to to handle simply because they aren't based on science. They're based upon a political view. Um, the first one is they're changing. I, I've served on the Colorado Task Force for the Age of Delinquency, which is, you know, at what age are kids going to be criminally responsible? Um, Colorado has for as far back as you can think of, established that the age for accountability for a juvenile was 10 years. If you were 10 years old, you could be subjected to a juvenile proceeding. Now, the overriding principle of the Colorado Juvenile Criminal Justice Act is for treatment and dealing with kids who commit crimes or crimes that would be a crime if it was committed by an adult. Whole focus is treatment. Now, under the new bill, they're changing where kids 10 to 13 can no longer be adjudicated a delinquent because they're under the age of 13, irregardless of the act. So if you're 12 years and 8 months old and you're with a friend who's 13 years one month that's, and you both commit a you know, vandalism, the 13-year-old can be held accountable, but the 12-year-old can't. So it's just a magic age of right. and a distinction of like 12, not okay, 13. Exactly. And, and the problem that I have is that the research has shown that generally kids age 10 years and up are aware of what's right and wrong. They know when an act is not legal. I think that that's probably pretty appropriate. Absolutely. I mean, on a much smaller scale, even your dog seems to know when something is not right. Yeah, we. we I, I mean, <laughs> we we learn very quickly mm-hmm. what's acceptable and what's not. And it, what we've done is it's a arbitrary decision to make children ten to thirteen not accountable for their their actions. Now, when I say accountable, they're not going to be sent to jail. They're not going to be in detention. But they need to be under the supervision of maybe probation to determine and learn how to be more accountable for what they do. So but, wouldn't you also say, too, would it be safe to say, too, though, that they could benefit from being held accountable in the fact that they might get some services like counseling that they would not be, I guess, would not be available to them? Right. No, and I think yeah. that, that's the whole focus mm-hmm. of the uh, juvenile justice is to teach them and provide them treatment so that they don't do it again. Now, one of the things that that bothers me is that they've abandoned the science. I mean, we've been studying um, age-appropriate interventions, and the evidence in the the science shows that generally that is acceptable from age 10 to age 18. Now, at what point, and they refer to it as... um, the uh, maturity of thought. At what point do you begin to think like an adult? And that's somewhere, it's a step that generally occurs age age 16 to age 19, Mm -hmm. where you begin to realize that your actions carry consequences and they carry consequences in the adult world. So a lot of research, this legislation has no tie whatsoever to any of the research it's done basically to say, you know, we don't want kids 10 to 13 involved in the the juvenile justice system. 
Okay. So besides that, <laughs> well, that's a lot to chew on right there. It is. It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a huge shift in the right. way our criminal justice and juvenile justice responds to um, basically accountability. The Everyone complains about all of the laws are making it easier for the person who commits the crime. And it's more difficult for the um, victim. Mm-hmm. You know, we see this a lot in, you know, currently one of the hot topics on the media is, you know, the liberal prosecutors around the country who have determined that, well, I think is it in um, New York where they, the district attorney there declared that any crime committed with a gun, if no one's hurt, it's not charged as a crime of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, problem with that is, is that, you know, the victim who had that gun shoved in his face clearly sees it as a crime of violence. They feel very offended. They're, you know, traumatized by it. But because the DA doesn't want to prosecute those cases, um, it's no longer a crime of violence. So isn't the district attorney the attorney for the people, right? Don't you stand right. up and, and, and it's like, what, we are the people for the, the people. people. Right. Okay, so I guess there's a fine line there. Like, which people are you for? You're for all people, right? Well, yeah. I mean... You know, and our whole criminal justice system is based upon the fact that, you know, we're not the attorneys for the victim, but the victims, under Colorado, we have the Victims' Rights Act, which mm-hmm. is a constitutional amendment that provides that the law has to respect and allow the victim to participate. Well, anymore, it seems like we're doing more and more legislation to remove the victim from that process and to grant greater rights to, um, to the defendant. Um, which probably the biggest uh, legislative change for criminal justice um, is weekend court. No. Right. Now, do we have that here yet? Uh, in it's, this? it's coming in April. Okay. Um, and it's a what we view as an unfunded mandate. And let me explain how that's occurring here locally. Mm-hmm. We have a law that now says that when a person's arrested, they have to be brought before the court, advised of all their rights, and bond set within 48 hours. There's nothing constitutional about it. The Constitution doesn't require this. The law doesn't require it. But they've now made this mandatory. So if you're arrested on a Friday night, then you would need to go to court before Monday because 48 hours would be up, right? Exactly. You know, if you're arrested on Friday at 7 o'clock, you have to be in court by Sunday at 7 o'clock. So what we, in response to that bill... We now have court scheduled starting in April on Saturday at 5 p.m. Weekend evening court. Weekend evening court. Night court. court. Night court. <laughs> I mean, now, not like the sitcom, of course, but yeah. Um, of course, the, the state legislature, when they set up this requirement, mm-hmm. didn't provide additional funding for the overtime that our, each of these offices are going to have to pay. When we have weekend court, it, for us, it's a, a minimum of a three-person project. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the deputy DA who's going to have to be in court to articulate and argue the, the people's position. We're going to have to have a victim's advocate, mm-hmm. uh, someone to, if it's a crime involving a victim, they will have had to have obtained the victim's position concerning bail. Um, so that's an additional person. We're going to have to have an investigator who's going to have to determine criminal histories of the person involved, You know, see if they've had a history of failing to appear in court, if they've got other violent crimes in their in their history. And then we're probably going to have to have a, an a actual administrative staff 
to do the, the documents necessary to file with the court. So, you know, minimum of three, probably four individuals are now going to be uh, working overtime. From your office. From our office. From here. the 16th Judicial District Attorney's Office. Right. Every week. Now, that's not even counting what public offenders will be doing. And uh, possibly, you know, you've got a judge and a court reporter as well. Right. Well, and now here's how the, the way the state mm -hmm. gets around it. Um, they've adopted the WebEx program so that um, the individual who's picked up in Los Animas for a crime that they commit, maybe a burglary or an assault in Los Animas, they're going to appear before a judge who's actually in Denver on video, uh, who knows nothing about the Bent County community, doesn't understand, you know, the impact on the, lo the local businesses, the victims, completely removed from, from our community. Uh, but I know that there's going to be three to four people of our office who's going to be involved with that case. On the WebEx. On the WebEx. But that doesn't still change the fact that we're going to have to be here in the office getting ready for that so that we can appear in Denver. Do more with less. That's um, a common theme, though. That's right. You know, yeah. we're providing greater rights to the defendant, and, and I'm not opposed to that. You know, I think a defendant mm -hmm. needs to be uh, needs to be addressed. But the state gave us no funding to offset those costs, and, and we estimated just for our office alone, we're looking at about a financial impact of about $100,000. Okay, so now how will that be funded? <laughs> uh, we just suck it up. You Suck know, it up, Buttercup. That's pretty much it. You know, we're all going to have to do more. Um, you know, maybe we're going to have to give you know comp time so that maybe the person who's going to be doing weekend court on that Friday gets off Friday at noon. Um, but then, if you have a docket full on Friday afternoon and you need them, what do you do? We just we're going to have to have other people cover. So we're basically requiring people to work harder, work more, for the same amount of pay. Well, that's going to be hard to recruit new people to this office. It, it's difficult. We, mm -hmm. you know, I suspect, but this is statewide, so I get it. You know, the fifteenth over in Prowers County mm -hmm. and Lamar, they're going to have the same issues. Um, but again, it, it, you know, they're requiring us to do more without providing any additional funding. Um, you know, one of the things that just burns me is that you know there's the allegation that you know we're not trying to. Um, address issues, um, you know, that we're just here to, to prosecute cases. Well, you know, the, the diversion programs that are started up around our community are generally started, devised, and run by prosecuting attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, it, you know, we're, we're trying to find alternatives to prosecution. Well, what was the first thing that got chopped when the state ran out of ran law and funding was those... Uh, prosecution-driven diversion programs. So, you know, we, we give a lot of um, lip service to how we need to provide other alternatives, and when we step up with one, the state says, well, we're not going to fund that. So, you know, it, there, it's a lot of doublespeak, in my opinion. From so the is that political? I mean, that seems like it could be very political. Oh, it was very political. Um, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there because... You know, on that girl can talk podcast, yeah. we do that. But, but like it, it sounds like to me that if you're telling me that this affected prosecuting attorneys, um, you know. Well, you know, we I, we were very engaged in the diversion programs from the when they first began coming out in the 2012 2013. 
uh, we were at the forefront. We had a very active, very you know comprehensive adult diversion program. But in 2020, when COVID hit, the claim was we don't have funding. That was the very first program. It was probably the biggest impact for us financially was that they eliminated our funding for diversion program. Now, we believe in the program, and you know, Mr. Culver, our elected DA, believes in the program, and he's you know, made arrangements for that program to continue, but we continue it at our cost, not with state assistance that we had before. So it's, you know, we hear that very often we need to have these alternatives for prosecution, and when we come up with a solution, we're not going to fund it. So when you pulled this bill up, and do you ever look at the, the fiscal note, how will this be funded, you bet. and That's things like that? Okay. Very common What did it say? I mean, did it just say that local um, districts will absorb cost, or how is it worded? Do you it, remember? Basically, the, the initial legislation was adopted and passed in 2012, mm-hmm. and it provided funding for DA-run diversion programs. Mm-hmm. Well, come 2020, they just basically said, we're no longer going to fund it. Period. You know, we just were done, um, so that it was on an individual district decision. Mm-hmm. And if you want to continue with it, you got to figure out a way to fund it yourself. And so we were able to do that. Um, but again, you know, it what they're talking about is not really what they're doing. You know, I, the other example that I have, uh, and we're seeing some repercussions from that now, um, is the elimination of possession of meth and heroin as a felony. Um, I saw that, that like literally any kind of drug you have now is going to be just a misdemeanor, right? Right. So unless Unless you have so much of it that it's clear that you're selling it. Right. You have the little baggies and the things that might look like you're in business. If you're distributing it, then it's a crime uh, and and a felony. But just the mere possession of these drugs is no longer a crime. You know, I, I thought we were going to have this war on drugs. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I get that we want to have this social experiment that, you know, we recognize uh, drug use as a medical issue and a, addiction as addiction. That's fine. But in order to respond to that, we also need funding for treatment because treatment's essential. And, you know, the fact that we, you know, criminal justice by holding a person accountable maybe through probation or through some kind of court supervision, we're going to help that person get assistance. But what we've done now is we've removed the court judicial and the criminal justice system from that. So now that this person who could have gotten some treatment through probation no longer is afforded treatment. Because a lot of times those those programs are funded, aren't they, through court cost? They are. Or, or through the, the fees that they pay when they have to go to court when they are charged with something, right? right. Okay. You know, there's, there's the drug offender surcharge, you know, which they use to, to fund treatment. Well, a lot of that's been cut back. Um, you know, the other issue is the state has terminated um, mental health diversion. In that, you know, wow, that is going to hurt. So when you mm-hmm. most of our homelessness issue is driven by two primary factors. That is, you know, drugs and mental health. You know, most people's the per- reasons why they're homeless are generally those two key factors. They're either homeless because they have, you know, their circumstances are such, or a substance abuse substance abuse problem. And our current government provides little, little, if any, treatment for those issues. 
We have a little time left. Uh, in, in five minutes or less, can we, can we tackle what else concerns you that's coming up and coming in the legislative session? Has there been anything that has really been on your, on your radar as a wow thing? You know, we've, we've heard a lot of discussions about you know, the Prosecu- Prosecutor Accountability Act, mm-hmm. uh, where we're going to hold prosecutors accountable for various factors. Um, that may have disappeared. I think once the legislators who were backing those issues uh, got to communicating with some of the other members of the legislature, um, they I, they may have been talked out of it. But it seems like you know we were preparing for this big battle on prosecutor accountability, and uh, so far nothing has arisen. Legislative session is still early. You know, we're yeah, another thing. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it may be something that crops up later on. Uh, Probably like in April. Yeah, or like <laughs> I, well, last year when it was introduced, it yeah. was, there was two days left in the session, and we were able to um, point out some of the real flaws in the legislation, and it didn't come out of committee. But um, that seems to be one of the hot button issues is prosecutor accountability. Um, you know, I. I don't mind being held accountable because that's part of my job. You know, my job is to hold other people accountable. So certainly, I should be accountable for what I do. But you know, the right now our criminal justice system is out of on, on tilt. Um, mm-hmm. Another very hot topic in the news lately that false criminal justice. I think it really kind of pinpoints the issues that we're facing. The individual in Jeffco, who the truck driver who The had, 10, yeah. yeah. Or he got his sentence commuted, right? Right. He was sentenced to 110 years. Now, that 110 years, um, that was not based upon the prosecutor. The prosecutor was not to blame for that. Our legislature said, if you're convicted of these crimes... You're going to have to serve a mandatory sentence of this. And the the thing with the crimes is they couldn't be served at the same time, right? right. It had to be one separate act. Separate crime. So right. in other words, you serve one, serve the next one. Okay. And, be, and they by statute, the system that's put together by our legislature, mm-hmm. this is what it says the sentence is going to be. Now, as prosecutors and the court system has the ability to go in and review those sentences and for various factors could modify that. But initially, that's what the sentence has to be under the the law that we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, Our governor uh, made a determination to come in and commute that sentence to, I think, 10 years. 10, I think. I think the, Mm -hmm. the DA's office had told the press that they were looking at 20 to 30 years, you know, this is an occurrence where there were four people killed, seven or eight people seriously injured. So it's a very serious crime. And so I understand where the prosecutor's at. The the problem we have is the governor's uh, intervention in the system before the system had had an opportunity to work. And so... You know, the governor, you know, he clearly, by I think his actions, shows he has no trust in the criminal justice system. So it's not allowing the system to work as the system should work. Right. So in other words, that that, that was a little too soon? Right. It was too soon. And, and really, I think it's indicative of a breakdown of all three branches of government. 
in that you know the, the legislature when it initially adopted the laws that said on these types of cases we're going to have these mandatory sentences but we're going to give you the opportunity to make adjustments here mm-hmm. you know that should have been included well the court system because the you know we're trying to follow the law you know we have to impose these sentences and then go back in and, and undo them, so to speak. Um, so, you know, maybe that's an error on the, the criminal justice system. But then the governor didn't give the opportunity for those other two systems to work. So, you know, that case is a uh, kind of a poster child yeah. of the breakdown of all three systems. And so, you know, I still believe that the United States of America the Colorado criminal justice systems are the best systems in the world. I think, you know, I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to believe in these systems, and I'm going to do everything I can to uphold the law. And in those areas where we need to clean them up, we're going to clean them up. We need to uh, start focusing on the common good for the common people, not for offshoots of political factions who are championing the a criminal justice cause that only focuses on that. I think that's a good place to stop. I think we did it. (laughs) Yeah, I always have fun talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to That Girl Can Talk podcast. 